Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Radical Traditional Feminist Podcast, where we, the Weird Sisters, talk about all of the different ways that we can be radical, traditional, and feminist. I am your host, the Idea Dynamo, Samantha Pierce, and I'm joined today by my fellow Weird Sisters, Nikki Park and Sarah Hammersmaugh. Today, we're going to be talking about, uh, talking about the topic of fathers as caregivers. And there's a, there's a lot of talk about mothering and mothers as caregivers. That's kind of what's expected in society, um, that women would be the primary caregivers of children. But there's, fathers are often forgotten in that conversation about caregiving. So we want to unpack that a little bit today. So, Sarah, Nikki, what are your thoughts about... The, conceiving how fathers can also function as caregivers for their children and how can we encourage fathers to be caregivers for their children? Well, my experience really uh, begins with just talking very openly about it very early on um, as to what is what the expectations are because many of us have a family structure that's set up uh, in some ways different from the families that we grew up in in one way or another. Um, and in our cases, um, both of us had mothers who were home for a lot of the time um, and fathers who primarily worked and outside the home. And, uh, and so to some degree, um, there's a sort of default set of expectations about which work mothers always do. And that was a conversation we had to have really early on. Um, I think my own father as a caregiver was actually very important in my life in the sense that when I was... Um, a very small child, my father ran a motel and my mom went to grad school for a while. And during that time, I would hang out with my dad at the motel, play on the switchboard, watch movies in the back room, you know, check out the Coke machine with the glass bottles. It was really fun. Uh, and so I had some really nice time with my dad as caregiver um, during that period of life, even though over the course of um, growing up, it was, you know, much more common that I would have been at home with my mom. Um, but for our case, um, really, when, when we decided to get married, it was already known that I was pursuing graduate school and uh, was on kind of a career track. And so the father being a caregiver alongside the mother was very much uh, something that we had to explicitly plan for. Yeah, for us, um, um, I had, you know, a pretty decent childhood with my father. There are a lot of things now as an adult I'm learning um, that weren't as great of a picture. And now as a mother myself, um, I've learned to I've learned to recognize the incredible role my mother had in raising us and, and you know what she kind of had to go through. And um, she was definitely the primary caregiver. However, at the time I recognized that as being the primary disciplinarian. Um, my dad was a friend, my dad wanted to be friends with his kids and uh, he had two girls and we could do no wrong. Um, and as an adult, I'm learning that it was out of guilt that we kind of could do no wrong and we got away with a lot. Um, so when we got married, we got married very young um, and we got married knowing that kind of as soon as we got married, we were gonna start trying to have a family. And, um, you know, at 22, I think, we didn't have as in-depth of a conversation about the expectations as parents of one another. 
And, you know, cause we were just, we told we couldn't have a baby unless we started it right then. So 22, we were like, we're going to have a baby and we'll figure it out. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what we ended up doing. And it ended up so far being okay. Um, taking out any sort of like mental health crisis or huge life, life crises. Um, I would say, yeah, I would say, you know, my kids recognize the role their dad plays in their life. And we lean into each other as parents, as a parenting team. Um, but I am a stay at home mother. So the primary childcare falls on me. It's definitely not a 50, 50 split. I'm responsible for appointments. I'm responsible for sick kids. I'm responsible for, you know, a lot of the emotional weight of the families. It falls on my shoulders. Um, partly because my husband's job is very unforgiving in terms of time not there. So, um, but that wasn't something we went into not agreeing upon. You know, when, when I decided to leave the job I had when I was pregnant with my second, it was, you know, we had a conversation about it and it was understood that this is how it was going to be, that my role was going to be more kid heavy, obviously. And part of the benefit is that he doesn't have to leave. We don't have a ton of money, but he doesn't have to leave work to take a kid to an appointment because I can't get out of work. So that, yeah, it kind of naturally happened that way. I would say we fell into it pretty, pretty quickly. Um, and it, it's, they're def- it's definitely hard, but um, yeah, I, I know when we got married, one of the things I said to my husband was, I don't want my kids raised with just a friend. I want my kids to love their dad and be, you know, um, attached to him and depend on him and like him, but he can't be just a friend. Like they're, my kids need to see their dad as a dad and not their buddy who will lie to mom for them so they won't get in trouble. Um, And my situation, yes, my, the family that I've made for myself now is very different from the family that I grew up in. For as long as I can remember, both of my parents worked. They're finally retired now and they, they don't know how to not work. <laughs> so my mom was the primary caregiver, but she also had um, a couple of different jobs outside of the home on top of that. And I think we, my, 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 my siblings and I, we had to learn to kind of help take care of ourselves and take care of the house. We were the kids where you went home from school and you had to be in the house at a certain time to receive the call from, from our parents so that they know that we are in the house when we're supposed to be. And if you weren't in the house at the correct time to receive the call, you were in trouble. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were we were supposed to call either mom or dad so that they could check in on us, or they would call home to check in on us. So in in uh, in a lot of ways, we helped raise ourselves. We helped take care of the family, but at the same time, um, I was very close to my father. And Sarah, as you were telling your story, it reminded me of when my dad was. Um, in school, he spent a lot of my childhood in college <laughs> for associates, you know, 
undergrad, then grad degrees, a couple grad degrees. And he would often take me along with him to campus. And mm -hmm. I remember being like the only child on campus wandering around just getting into stuff and, and professors would, would take pity on me and you know they'd actually have conversations with me and show me things and um, so that was a, a very fond memory of that I have of my childhood with my father and um, so it, it was a very interesting way that well I'd say it's it's kind of typical of the of the immigrant experience in America where both parents work um, both parents work probably multiple jobs they're also doing other things to improve their situation like going to school and the kids have to add their own their own work and their own labor and their own care to help raise themselves and take care of the rest of the family now myself and the family that I built for myself um, when I got married, we didn't really have a, a whole lot of conversations about who was going to take care of the kids. We knew we wanted kids and we knew that I wanted to, to be present for, the child, for, for my children more than my parents were able to be present for me. So I, I ended up being a stay-at-home mom. I was like, okay, yeah. It was very challenging for me being a stay-at-home mom. I think because my husband came out of a, a family tradition where his mother took care of all the household chores and all the all the inside chores and the cooking and the cleaning and, and the and the kids and, and all of that stuff. And his father was just kind of there. He was in charge of the outside of the house mm -hmm. and, and that was that was the extent of his uh, child rearing, sort of, you know, aside from also driving them all over the place for their things. So I had a very different idea of what I, you know, what I expected from the, from my husband as a father, I think, than he did. And we had to work that out along the way. And uh, today is our anniversary, 22 years Happy together. Anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Um, Thank you. The kids seem to think we've done a good job parenting, so <laughs> I think we got something right. <laughs> now, when you when you think about what men are often told about being fathers, what 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 are what are some of the things that you hear men what messages are men receiving about being fathers, and are those messages Helpful, not so helpful, somewhere in the middle. Sarah, let's start with you. Yeah, well, I would say that um, in our situation, you know, Rob has had to really be um, open and willing to be in spaces where there are a lot of women um, taking care of kids and he's the man who's there with his kids. Um, that's happened. Um, over the course, for instance, when we moved here, we moved here for my job, and so he didn't have a job at first, which meant he was doing a lot of the running around with kids. And um, thankfully, that's just something that he is fine with. But uh, but I think the messaging 
and sort of like the impression that uh, people give is sort of that we expect those kid running around things and homework help and all this stuff um, to be more often done by moms. And so a dad just has to be willing to be countercultural in that sense of just you know, like, well, no, this is this is what I'm doing right now. And I remember when we first visited our church, actually, um, one of the first couples we met was another couple that had recently joined or was in the process of joining. Um, and that dad was homeschooling their kids and the mom was working. And it was just such a breath of fresh air to meet another family where the mom was working right now, the dad was home right now. Um, and the idea that that they were able to feel comfortable in this church gave me a lot of hope that I could feel comfortable in this church. It really, it made a huge difference. Um, the church setting is one where I think the, at least to the extent in our previous churches that we we heard about parenting, a lot of times there was a sense of of the father still having this sort of distinct disciplinary role as mm. as like a main role. Um, although not always. Um, and I think, you know, thankfully, in a lot of ways, the church is a place that maintains the importance of both parents as being responsible for raising their kids. Um, and so I really appreciate that, like, just the book of Proverbs, where it gives things about um, what fathers need to do to raise their children well, um, suggests that fathers are involved somehow in raising their children, um, which actually, you know, in some parts of our society isn't really expected or isn't really the case. Um, and so, um, so I'm thankful for that, um, for that biblical foundation for a father who's engaged with his kids, who's thinking about how to raise them. And I'm thankful for a husband who's um, just able to be very flexible and sort of not worry too much about what it looks like around him if he's bringing his kid to a birthday party and all the other people are moms that brought their kid, it's fine. Um, and so um, so it's kind of encouraging. And I think as time goes on, the messages are getting better for fathers, but there is this sort of weird in-between stage where it seems um, that fathers being involved in their child rearing is celebrated in a distinct way that can sometimes rub the wrong way um, for, yeah. for moms. Um, at the same time, I I would love for lots of fathers to become more involved with their kids. And I think, you know, a big, a big uh, social movement, I hope, you know, brewing in the future will be actually family-friendly policies for men in the workplace. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, women have worked so hard to be able to find um, ways to balance work and home. And I think in the meantime, the expectations of men are changing in a good way at home. Um, the idea that they are um, expected to be connecting with their kids in a lot of ways. And uh, and it means they might sometimes need to be off work for kid-related reasons. And um, that's been true for Rob all along uh, because both of us were working. Um, but I appreciate the kind of employer who recognizes that um, regardless of the gender of the person who works for them, that if that person is a parent, that that person might have responsibilities sometimes um, that require them to be away. Yeah, I think, you know, there, I've got two kind of trains of thought in this. And the first is secular parenting and secular fatherhood. And the other is kind of, I guess, almost like the fundamentalist Christian view, yeah. which sometimes I think 
look more alike than different. Um, I'm in a lot of parenting or a couple of parenting Facebook groups that are not affiliated with the church. And a lot of the complaints some of the women have kind of reflect what, um, you know, a stereotypical, I think, fundamentalist Christian home would look like. I'm thinking of like the Duggar family where, you know, the dad is the head and that means makes decisions and tells people what to do. And the woman is, is kind of charged with all of the quote womanly jobs of raising children. Um, and, you know, what can fall under that is the housework and the um, emotional load of schedules and all of those things. Um, and I think Sarah, what you were saying when, when a dad shows up and is the one bringing, you know, their daughter to ballet and everybody fawns over <laughs> what a great job, what a great dad he is. He drove his daughter somewhere. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, I know my husband is infuriated by that. He's like, yes, I, yeah, I did. Thanks. Can I get a parade? <laughs> um, but, you know, if, and, and I think for, um, you know, kind of the mainstream, especially the American Christian, um, church and I would probably leave our church out of that um but the kind of stereotypical American church um you know they see almost the same thing the father is the head of the home it's a very leaned into the complementarianism of a woman's role and a man's role which may not work in a modern American home um, my kids want, my kids get excited when they see my husband, like doing the dishes. Cause they're like, you know, they're like, you worked all day and now you're helping mom. And it's like, <laughs> they don't throw them a parade or anything, but I think it's important for children to see, you know, exactly what Sarah was talking about that. Yeah. Dad can do these things too. And it's not a huge deal. It's just part of life. And, um, Sometimes there doesn't need to be a conversation about it. Sometimes there are dishes in the sink and daddy's just going to do them because that's, yeah. you know, there doesn't need to be a celebration. I'm certainly going to thank him and be grateful, but there doesn't need to be a big, look what I did, the dishes. And yeah. there doesn't need to be a conversation about division of labor. Sometimes dishes in the sink just need to get done. It doesn't matter who does them and it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you you brought up a couple of points that uh, you both brought up a couple of points that I want to dig into, and the, the first one is this, you know, when fathers do regular everyday parenting things, people are like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Meanwhile, mothers do this like twenty eleven times a day, and nobody bats an eye. And for my part, I look at that and I think, well, if parenting's if, important enough for both parents to do it and it's important enough enough to celebrate both parents as they do it so we don't really it, it gives the impression that we don't really value those nitty-gritty details of the doing of parenting if we think it's so extraordinary that a father would choose to do it mm -hmm. that's one thing the other thing is when you when you, Nikki, mentioned this, this division of labor and this idea that there are different roles. Now, I know that there are 
schools of thought that say for every single couple that the men have specific roles and the women have specific roles. And as I read the Bible verses that are presented as evidence for these schools of thought, I look at them and I think, but this doesn't actually say that women can only do this and men should only do that. What I'm looking at it is that a husband and a wife need to negotiate with each other mm-hmm. what their relationship is going to look like and what their roles in the relationship are going to look like. And when it comes to parenting, they both need to negotiate what their parenting is going to look like. And then they follow through with that plan. And it really doesn't matter what anybody else thinks unless they go to someone else and ask for advice on how to best take care of that. Mm-hmm. And so when, it, when I'm looking at something like, like comp- complementarianism that says that women have these have to stay in this specific lane, and men have to stay in that this specific lane. <laughs> my immediate thought is, well, who are you to tell me and my husband how we function together as a family unit? Mm-hmm. You, with you. So why do you get a say? Especially if I didn't ask you for advice in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but okay. you know, that's just me. Yeah, and I wonder how the Bible saying that men have gifts and women have gifts and these are how you use these gifts apart and together, how that turned into, I'm the mom, so I take every kid to every appointment. You know, and that's very different than the negotiation my husband and I had, that my world is very different than Sarah and Sam's world that I'm at home, I don't work outside of the home. And so our negotiation says, yes, I do the primary car driving pool nonstop on the roadness because I have the ability to, and I have the schedule Mm -hmm. that's available to. Now, if I were working full-time, it would be a different negotiation. It wouldn't just be, I'm the mother, so I do it. Right, yeah. And I think that's that's really the key is this, is the biblical guidance is really a, it's its just setting sort of a framework, but how we work out that framework looks very different in different families. Mm, um, yeah. And I think because in ours, both of us have always been working, it's just forced us to be, it sort of forced us to be more direct about figuring out who's in charge of what, because it's just very hard to actually do all the things. Um, with the schedules that we have and so um, but it's also it's it's really been clarifying over the years as to what we each have as our default expectations Mm -hmm. because when something doesn't get done it may be because we each think that the other person would naturally do that and maybe we never actually discussed who was supposed to do it (laughs) Um, and so uh, so it's it sort of forces some conversations about okay, really, who's responsible for this, though? How, how are we going to get this done? Um, and it also just means when we don't have those conversations that there are things that don't get done. And, um, yes. and that's, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, sometimes it, it creates problems. I don't want to make it sound like we just, like, look at all the things and make a nice list and sit down and have this meeting and then everything's set. Mm-hmm. It's not like that at all. <laughs> no. Um, but, um, but there is that sort of, 
um, trying to sort it out together and, and just identify like, what are the things that we're each good at and what do we not mind doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, Rob doesn't mind doing dishes. He watches something on his phone. He takes his time doing them and kind of like, it's not a horrible chore for him. Uh, it's sort of some introvert time. And so that works for him to be one of his tasks. And I'm responsible for getting most of the meals ready. Getting meals ready involves making decisions about what to eat and what to buy and what to do. And those are things that really would stress him out. And so those are things that I can do that I can, you know, do. I don't love, but I don't mind. Um, and so, um, so we, we sort of have to work it out based on our, our own preferences, what makes us exhausted, um, trying not to let either of us end up with a lot of things to do that we can't really bear for a long time. We need to be sustainable. Um, and as far as caregiving specifically for kids, something I thought we should talk about is, um, I think maybe some of the unique ways that fathers are thrust into caregiving when their kids have special needs. Um, that simply, it just simply becomes impossible for them to not be extremely involved in some ways. Um, whether it's actually, you know, I'm not thinking only of like taking time away from work to do time with children for caregiving, but just thinking about the amount of, um, mental and emotional energy that is required of them to think with you about how you're going to manage behavioral issues with a kid or how you're going to talk about meds, these conversations you have to have together. Um, and even if they're outside the home working a lot of the day, when they're home, they kind of just have to be engaged with, with what's going on with kids in ways that I think in a family where um, none of the kids um, needs therapy or medications or behavioral help or support, maybe uh, maybe a different sort of equilibrium could develop. But in our home, that's really been, um, it's just been a necessity that we're both pretty highly engaged. And, and even within that sort of sphere, there's a certain division of labor, like Rob mm-hmm. calls to make the appointments for one of the specialists and um, and make sure that the meds get updated. And I go along with Lucas to most of these particular other appointments. And there's sort of, um, there's a set of things that I'm responsible for, but some things that he is too. And there's a lot of required discussion just because there's a lot of decision-making when it comes to these things. I mean, I was, I was just thinking about that because really like literally just before Nate went, um, Nate and my son left to go to his mom's house, I said, oh, I just um, wanted to let you know, I emailed the doctor about something we were talking about with our daughter. Um, I figured it would be best if I had a video call with her. And then I was like, wait, it would be best if we had a video call, but you'll be at work. And <laughs> so I, it was just one of those moments that I was like, yeah, I have to make a lot of quick decisions about my kid's care because I'm the person that's right there in the moment. And then sometimes I have to fill him in later. Like, mm-hmm. I would that I took our son to get an EEG for his um, epilepsy diagnosis. And I had to make some decisions without the luxury of having my husband in the room with us. And, um, you know, that comes with a lot of weight as well. Um, Thankfully, he has, he trusts me in those things. And as I said before, his job is very unforgiving. 
about missing work. So we're kind of stuck sometimes in the position that I just have to make a decision. Um, and, you know, if I have time to give him a call or even text him, I will do my best. But if a doctor's sitting there saying, we're going to try this medication, I'm going to say yes or no. And mm-hmm. hopefully he's going to continue to have trust in me that I've made the right decision. But that's, you know, that always weighs on me, which is so interesting yes. about talking about special needs kids and, and, um, because I'm the one doing the primary caregiving, sometimes I don't have the ability or the luxury to get that second opinion or the, you know, the 50-50 split of the special needs caregiving. Mm-hmm. Granted, yeah. our, I will say our special needs caregiving isn't as intense as the two of yours is. So it's not, it hasn't yet been like huge lofty decisions that I'm, I'm kind of dealing with on my own. Um, but thankfully, as I said, he's shown he's got the utmost trust in me to make the right choice, hopefully. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in, in our situation, it's whichever parent is closest to the kid in question, there's five of them, <laughs> or whichever parent has spent the most time researching about whatever particular aspect of care we need to take care of. But at the same time, we have always been insistent that we both be present as much as possible. And my husband has a job that is rather forgiving about time mm-hmm. off. He has a, a, a rather flexible schedule. I was a stay-at-home mom for actually most of the most of the last 22 years I was a stay-at-home mom. So I was, my time was also flexible. And so we tried as much as possible to have both of us show up because I figured out pretty quickly that we had very different, um, we, we have very different personalities. We focused on, on very different things. And so with the both of us looking at any issue, we were likely to get a fuller picture of whatever was going on. Now, there were times where we had conflicts about what we should do um actually there was only really one time that we had a really big conflict that involved a trip to the hospital and a week-long hospital stay but um for the most part we there's this constant negotiation between us okay this kid needs to go to this appointment to have to to talk to the doctor about this particular thing what's your schedule like (laughs) you know uh what how many papers do you have to grade or you know, how many meetings do uh, do I have to go to? And there's that conversation. And then there's the stuff that just happens inside the house where the both of us have to be mental health providers, um, occupational therapists, speech ther- therapists, child psychologists to all the different kids at different times for different reasons. And it's just this, it's a constant back and forth. And We've gotten better with the communication about mm-hmm. what needs to happen. And I have also learned to, to not sweat a lot of the details. Well, I never, I was never the detail person to begin with. I've had to learn how to wrangle details. I'm more of the big picture person. Like I, I start at the starting, starting point and I'm at the, immediately at the finish point enjoying the finished picture. My husband really enjoys all the little minute details in between. 
And we finally figured out how to make that work for the both of us and how to make it work for our family. So it's, it, it was, especially with special needs with disabilities thrown in the mix, it was interesting. There was a lot of negotiating, uh, a, you know, a lot of like, well, a, a lot of, I'm good at this, you're better at this. And now we kind of have a pattern where we know what our specialties are and we know what our limits are. I'm the one who's usually doing the social emotional things, the, the, the explicit social emotional things and talking the kids through their feelings and helping them uh, be able to express themselves. But I'm also, you know, I've learned that I can only do that for so long. And when I need a break, honey, okay, it's your turn to talk to this kid, but because if I keep talking, I'm going to say something that will scar them for life because <laughs> I've reached my limit. <laughs> I do not actually have a bottomless pit of patience. So we've learned to tag team like that. And then, you know, there are times when things are not super heavy and weighty and we're not making these, these life decisions where we can just be complete goofball nerds and the kids love it. And my husband has this great sense of dad humor he's got this great dad humor and what's really hilarious is that a lot of the things that he says and does that cracks the kids up are things that the kids are doing amongst themselves mm -hmm. <laughs> it's it's really fun to watch and to hear hear the children interacting with their peers like and saying and doing things that their father does because they've actually spent time around him it's he's He's a homebody. So if he's not in the classroom, he's at home and interacting with the kids. Something interesting, I think, is getting at this sort of like how there's no one way to do this. One of the challenges with, with sharing work caregiving is the communication being really complicated. So, um, for instance, there was a time not too long ago um, where my son had his uh, appointment with um, with the person who does meds, and I just hadn't, you know, I guess I hadn't realized, but I hadn't communicated much with Rob about how things were going during the times I'm home with the kids, and I actually had some things that I was pretty concerned about, and his experience hadn't overlapped with that, and he didn't realize, and so um, but that day, his schedule was the one where he was there during the time for that meeting, and I was working. And so afterwards, um, you know, that night or the next day, he said, "Yeah, yeah, it went fine. I just told her everything's good. You know, we're all we're all set." And I'm like, "Oh, really? Are we? <laughs> Did you?" Um, but it, so uh, there, there's this, Nikki. What I love about your situation is the there's a consistency in which you are aware of exactly the trajectory of, of each kid and what is going on with them. And, uh, and so that setup really lends itself to a kid getting that sort of consistent care. And um, our way shares the load in a certain way, but also adds this wrinkle of um, both uh, a difference in just awareness of how things are going. And also like Samantha said, the the potential difference in perspectives on what a good thing would be to do about it. 
Um, and so um, we, we um, have had to just have more conversations just to make sure that there's even just the joint awareness. And that's, that in, in our particular case, I don't know, maybe this is something each of you could speak to too. Our, our kids interact very differently with each of us. And so there are whole like many month periods where one kid and I are really hitting it off well, and the other kid and I are totally not. And it's going the other way for Rob. And, and actually for probably, I think there was a year at one point where we just decided that Rob had to put Lucas to bed every night, as long as he was physically here, because it just didn't work. And, and, and I put Meredith to bed every night. And like, it was so strange because we thought this should be a thing that's flexible, but it was turning into just such a struggle. And, and we just were like divide and conquer. We're just going to divide and conquer. That's all we got. Um, and try to work it out later. And, and, you know, I think particularly with my son, the relationship is very, um, it's, it's such a deep, it's a very big, he has very big feelings. He has very deep emotions and very deep attachments. And so when we're good, we're really good. And we're bad, we're really bad. I mean, there's yeah. just, there's, there's no sort of like blah in, in a relationship with him. It's either going really well or it's going really poorly. And so um, figuring out how to sort of manage that, it's been really important to have um, Rob as the other caregiver who can just, who just has, is a different person with a different relationship with him. And he just needs a different person sometimes. And so, um, so being able to, you know, when we think of like our kids needing to, um, needing to develop a good self-image, if they're spending a lot of time with one parent and they're in a, in a bad period with them and not getting along, it just really wears on both people. And so having another person who can just give them happy times and good times and like something that's not stressful somehow, um, it's not necessarily because the activities are so different, but it's just sometimes one personality is just the one that the kid needs to connect with right then. And so we've had to try to be really flexible about that um, when we're, when, especially if in the evenings or something or on the weekend when we're both here, um, thinking about how to make sure each kid's getting some attention and, and, um, and that we're sort of not wearing ourselves out by do, doing the, the harder things when the other person wouldn't find them as hard because their relationship is just in a different place. And I think one of the things that I have found and especially appreciated since how we, since COVID became a thing and, and drastically changed our world is watching the children spend time with their father and interact with their father. And, uh, you know, they, they, they've developed special things that they do together, some of which I do not understand. And <laughs> that's okay. Because <laughs> he doesn't always understand what I'm doing with the kids either. What, you're going to the craft store again? You were just there <laughs> yesterday. It's okay, we need to get new different craft things this time. And watching their, watching their relationship grow and develop, because we had nowhere else to go, we, we could only talk to, hang out with each other and talk to each other. That was something special and, and, and important, especially for my girls in, you know, 
learning how learning what to expect from from any men they may form friendship friendships with or intimate relationships with. That is a I see that as an extremely important role for fathers. I know my father really shaped my expectations of what a father and husband are supposed to be. And there was there was a point early on, you know, when I watching my husband do something and I'm like, oh no, I married my father. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I, I didn't mean to do that. I wasn't trying to do that. It that's just the way it worked out. And so if fathers have have a huge influence in the lives of their children. And I think it was either I think it was you, Sarah, who mentioned that that role doesn't always have to be the disciplinarian role. There can be an element of, of emotional touchy feely to a father-child relationship wherein they they share their feelings with each other. They share the things that they enjoy. Um, my husband is a sci-fi fantasy nerd and we are, well, so am I, to be honest. We're different <laughs> kinds of nerds about sci-fi fantasy. And he's sharing all of his knowledge and interest with the children and they are finding their own fandoms to be involved with and become sci-fi fantasy nerds about. You know, he's big into music. We've got one kid who's into musicals and all sorts of music and spent the pandemic learning one, two, three, four new instruments. <laughs> yeah. You know, I will say um, kind of going back to what um, a little of both of you are saying, nothing changed for us in terms of who was home for COVID except the children were home. So my husband's job, he, he went to work every single day. Nothing changed for him. He wasn't virtual. He wasn't anything. Um, so kind of as a result of that, the kid's dependence on me has increased even more than when I was their stay-at-home mother. Um, so sometimes I feel like Nate can feel almost squeezed out. And I try really hard to avoid that. Just for example, the other day, they'd just gotten home from school and the word mom had been uttered 697,000 times in like 30 minutes. And Nate finally went, you need to go away to me. He told me, he was like, you need to go away because if these kids say mom again, I'm going to lose my mind. And he's like <laughs> sitting right here. He's like, I can do homework with you. I can get you a snack. I can do this. I can do this. Why are you asking for her again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know, and I often tell my kids, you know, your father's here too. Yeah. <laughs> for things too. And uh, one of them was, was, was very frank and honest, but I like bothering you, mom. Mm -hmm. Gee, thanks. Yeah. My son all the time, he has the same homework every day. He's got to do multiplication facts and he does it himself. He doesn't really need help. And for some reason, having me sitting next to him, instead of Nate sitting next to him is how he likes to do his homework. And finally we were like, this is a battle. We're not going to win. I have to yeah. sit next to him. Nate will find someone else to help. <laughs> yeah. There's just, there's a time and a place uh, with uh, different kinds of helping with stuff. Oh, there's, there's some things where um, my husband and daughter, if 
if he tries to help her with the thing, it just, it goes south. Um, and th that kind of thing, when I help her, it's not that it goes well, but it, it's not, it's not as rough. And then the opposite with our son. And so it's sort of, well, this, let's just figure out something that doesn't go badly. You know, if we can come up with some plan that mm -hmm. where things don't fall apart. Um, yeah, something Nate and I are being trying to be more intentional about is our oldest daughter is just on the cusp of puberty. And we were like, we, we need to, he needs to be as intentional as possible about the time he spends with her. And as Sarah, as, or I'm sorry, Samantha was saying, you know, being that male role model, male that, you know, just that model dad, I guess. <laughs> And because we're about to get into territory where he can't do anything right. And we're, I mean, honestly, we're there, but <laughs> in her eyes, <laughs> um, they and don't so he's so he yeah, I know. But I'm here <laughs> all the time. They're fine. <laughs> you know, so he's been really, really intentional about, um, you know, they try to take a walk together every couple of days after school and like, just getting some one-on-one -on -one time in with her at the beginning of this like crazy, horrible season, honestly, <laughs> that she's about to embark in. <laughs> and we have an interloper who's visiting. Hello, little one. <laughs> she... So as we are, as we're talking about how our husbands, how they handle the, the parenting, the fathering, what, what do you think is the most important message for men who want to become fathers or who are fathers? What's, what are some of the messages, the important messages that they need to hear? I think, um, you know, the first thing that came to my mind is that your partner is your number one. Your partner is your team. You are a unit. And however that, whatever that means and how you work together, everything has to be together. You have to be on the same page or in the same book. Yeah, the same book would help. And, you know, the kids and not saying, I don't, not saying that your partner is going to be more important than the kids or, you know, things like that but that your kids see you united and the kids understand, you know, if mom says no to a snack, dad's not going to say yes. Not like Nikki's dad would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. My, my kids have that. We, they, in the last few weeks, they've been doing things like that. They'll come ask me for something and I'll say, go ask your father. And then they'll come back and ask me again. I'm like, well, what did your father say? <laughs> and he will do the same thing and it's like they're trying to go back and forth between us to get one of us to say to give a different answer from the other <laughs> they're like uh, no and you know it frustrates them when we're like well what did the other parent say <laughs> i think one of the key yeah one of the key messages i think would just um be to encourage men to be radical in the sense that they um, they don't need to follow a particular mold of either what they were raised in or what society around them is doing. And um, especially in the case of Christian dads, that 
caregiving is part of their God-given call of their kids. It doesn't mean full-time or primary caregiving, but it means being a parent is a is an important identity uh, and a, a responsibility that that they need to hold dear and that they need to um, that they need to recognize not just as a responsibility but as part of their joy. They need to find um, things that they love to do with their kids. They need to see the way that God's working um, in their family and in their kids' lives and um, and not feel like it's just uh, a set of tasks, mm-hmm. like housework, um, that it would be, um, that they'd recognize that those relationships are ongoing and that their own relationship with each kid is, a, is its own thing. It's distinct from the relationship they have with anyone else. Yeah. And I think something that I think is extremely important for, for men to realize, to recognize is that they can use the gifts and the talents that they have to build relationships with their children. You know, parent, there's more to parenting than, than cleaning and changing diapers and scheduling all the appointments and things. There's that interpersonal relation, that interaction, that day-to-day and how, how we talk to each other, the things that we talk to each other about. Dads can do that too. And dads have unique, while each individual dad has unique qualities unique to him that he can share with his children and build a relationship around that. And so the the importance of, of, of parenting and fatherhood, I think, are giving of yourself to your children by interacting with them. Mm-hmm. Any other messages that you want to share with with dads, fathers, about their role as parents, as caregivers? You know, I think another good one is that it's okay for your kids to see you make mistakes or mm. to be struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my husband went through a pretty significant mental health crisis a couple of years ago, and it rears its ugly head about once a year. Um, it's getting better every year, thankfully. But our daughter is old enough that she recognizes something's different. And he finally kind of had a real conversation with her about it. And he would, he just left the conversation like, wow, she gets it. And she knows she did nothing wrong. This isn't about her. And, um, you know, it gave them this really cool moment, um, that she was able to recognize, you know, her dad is human and her parents are human. Um, And it's okay. I think this goes for parents, all adults, anybody. You're allowed to apologize to children. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's you should apologize to your children (laughs) because you're not going to be perfect and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to yell and you're going to just, it's hard. And you're allowed to say you're sorry. And it doesn't make you weak or wrong even, but it just, your kids deserve that grace as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's an opportunity for them to learn what forgiveness looks like and feels mm-hmm. like. I, I've apologized to my kids for things, and they're like, okay, fine, mom. Or they're like, or I get a hug and a squeeze. It's like, <laughs> okay, we'll move on to the next thing, mom. And those are those great moments. Those are great moments when, as parents, we 
acknowledge our own frailty mm-hmm. because one, it helps build a better, it helps connect, helps bind you to your children. And two, it teaches them how to be when they go out into the world. It teaches them to be authentic and vulnerable and own their mistakes and learn from their mistakes. Because every mistake mm-hmm. is an opportunity to learn something rather than an opportunity to be beat over the head because you weren't yeah. perfect and made a mistake. Mm-hmm. We, we have a rule in our house called, I guess not a rule, but a system called reset where mm, we used yeah. it a lot more when the kids were little, um, where we would say, if you go somewhere and reset yourself, this is kind of your warning before your behavior turns into, you're going to get a consequence. So just go take a minute, do what you need to do. Come sit with me, come cuddle me, whatever you need to do to reset yourself so we can try this again. And you don't, you're not going to get punished. You're not going to get in trouble if you change your behavior right now. One time my husband did it. He just went, I need a reset. And my kids' brains just like, like <laughs> parents can take a reset. And I remember he's just said, I need a minute. I'm really angry. I'm going to go reset myself. And it was just such a crazy moment for them that, that the tools that we kind of instilled in them, they're like, oh, wait, this is a thing that carries through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's and, not just for kids. Yeah. <laughs> so we are, we've got a little bit of time left. And I know I talked a little bit about how our family's relationships have changed, have grown during the pandemic. What are, what are you seeing with how you, what the, what are the family dynamics like for you now? As we've been through this, we've been through this for, for over a year now, and there's talk about opening things back up. Um, I, I don't know about that, but <laughs> there, there are a lot of people who are ready to like throw the doors open and just get back to interacting in large groups and introvert self is like um I had a panic attack at Wegmans yesterday I'm not ready for this (laughs) yeah yeah yes I I greatly enjoyed not having to go anywhere and not having to interact with people and as things open up I'm like ah I don't uh, no can we not can we just stay like this forever but like Maybe, yeah, we can go outside and hang out outside without the masks, yeah? But, Sarah, how about you? <laughs> I, I am definitely in this place of trying to even picture what it looks like to do what we were doing before because I feel like, I don't feel like there's enough time to do it, what we were doing before. And I'm even just the things like, I started grocery shopping in real life instead of getting delivery um, just in the last few weeks. And heck if I can find a time when I can like leave the house and go just go to the grocery store and be gone for an hour because like the kids are still always here. And I sort of like this, I don't know, maybe maybe we're not, our family is really not going to be back to normal until the school year's over. And then our kids have um, they go to their nanny's house for about six hours a day during the summer, like during the school day part of the day. Um, that's when there will actually not be people in our house. 
um, and will make things a little bit easier. Now, my kids do go to my parents' house um, for a few hours most days, but that time is very, very much taken by work responsibilities. And so I can't really go grocery shopping when they're at my parents because I'm in meetings or I'm teaching. And um, so I'm getting some of that wrapped up, but I don't know, even bringing the kids to live therapy, which I desperately want to do because it will be much better than um, telemedicine for them, at least certainly for my son. Um, but I now it's like, oh, we have to figure out when we can actually like go drive to the place, park, go. Everything's going to, it just seems like everything's going to take too long. Like I, with groceries, I just went online whenever and just, to look, just ordered them and telemedicine, you just log on the second the appointment starts and then you log off the second that it's over. Um, and so I'm suddenly just realizing that there's like all this transport time and like time that I'm, I've gotten used to not having to worry about. And now I have to try to figure out where to find it. And, and I'm also thinking about what can, what can my kids do? They don't do sports. Um, but I would love for them to get some interactions with other kids, um, especially since they haven't been in school. Um, and so, oh, I'm looking into a couple different things and then I'm just thinking, oh, but then we have to go there. <laughs> oh, that I, hard. I, I know I know that feeling and that is that's one of the things that I, I struggled with pre-COVID it's like all those little steps to get anywhere to do anything they seemed like hurdles to me and, and it, that's that perception of time and, and managing steps that's a part of I know now that's a part of my disability. Before, I couldn't understand why it why it was so hard for me to get anywhere on time or, or get anything done. It's because it took more effort to do each step in the process mm-hmm. than it would take a, a neurotypical person. And yeah. not having to carry that weight around anymore, thanks to, to the pandemic, that took a lot of weight off of me. And the whole time I've been reevaluating, do I want to go back to what that was like? No, 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 I don't. And yeah, you know, every time I hear people talking about, okay, let's get back to 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 life before the pandemic, I'm like, but do we want to though? Was that really good for us? Was that really healthy? Uh, yeah, there's you definitely know, it drove me into deep depression several times. There's been a line for us because my husband and I are both pretty big introverts. And, um, this was the first year since we've been attending our church that we didn't go to Christmas Eve service because they didn't have Christmas Eve service. And we just kind of did our own. We used some of their, um, the source resources they provided and, you know, did our own Christmas Eve service. And at the end we looked at each other and we were like, that was great. (laughs) We didn't have to get dressed. We didn't have to juggle kids in church like that was lovely next year is going to be really hard but we're like no you have to go to christmas eve service (laughs) (laughs) you just have to (laughs) yeah i gotta tell you doing church from the living room floor in our pjs it's pretty nice (laughs) i'm thinking about all of the all these things that all these extra things that we throw on to everything that makes it that much more burdensome We've learned, we've gotten used to doing without those now. 
So I'm hoping that that we, as we move forward, we go into a, a new world where we where we focus on the essentials and leave aside all the extra, all mm-hmm. the dross, the stuff that was stressing, stuff that was stressing me out. You know, it's like, oh, yep, nope, not letting that back in. <laughs> and uh, I think one of the things that 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 this this time of call it isolation because I never really felt isolated. Mm-hmm. I felt more free. But one of the things that it's taught me is that, yeah, I can say no to things. Yeah. No, no, I am. I'm not going to hang out with you without a mask. Yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, um, I always have kind of a. Um, we we my kids aren't huge sports kids, um, and part of me is always like, well, is that lack of me pushing them into being kind of doing more extracurricular activities, and especially recently when we've kind of loosened up a little bit with at least our neighborhood. Um, my kids are playing with the neighborhood kids more and, um, we're taking precautions and being safe about it. But I was like, I think the unstructured time they have is serving them well. I don't think they need to have Mm -hmm. soccer at 5 PM on Wednesdays. I think saying you're home from school, you finished your homework. Um, just go outside, go play with your friends. We have this really wonderful God-given setup that um, there's like a circle of neighbors that are all our yards are basically all touching or across the street, and at least one parent's always outside, but everybody's in the window watching, and um, it's just I think it's okay to be unstructured, and you know my younger two kids are just thriving, having some unstructured time with their friends Mm -hmm. that nothing's really required of them. And Mm -hmm. I think I'm okay with that. I don't think I feel, I don't think I feel as guilty for not being like the extracurricular mom who's going to 2 million places every night with something Mm -hmm. to do. I I have one, actually two kids doing extracurricular. Yeah, they just started a few weeks ago and I'm like, kids, really? Can we not? <laughs> I, I love, I love being able to like send them outside and and then just listen to them running around screaming with like the one neighbor kid that they played with the whole time. The, the only kid that they played with that they're not related to. <laughs> and they get it. They just let their imaginations run loose. And I'm thankful that we live in a neighborhood where I can do that. I did not grow up in a na- in neighborhoods where I would feel comfortable just letting them roam by themselves for hours at a time. But I live in a neighborhood where I feel comfortable doing that, and we we were able to let them de- get their energy out by sending them outside to run around and build forts in the woods in the back of the house. I mean, it's not a lot of work. It's like a few a stand of trees. You know, um, in between the backyards, but they're out there. They're building forts. They're climbing trees. They're they're doing uh, cryptozoology and like, how do you know that word? <laughs> and I can do that, but for there, I know that there are kids who live in neighborhoods where it's not safe for them to go outside and run around like that. 
And for the past year, I've been racking my brain about how do we help those kids? Because they're stuck inside. It's not safe for them to go outside. They can't go to the library. They can't really go anywhere to do anything. And uh, oh, I saw a lot of those kids roaming the streets in not like gangs, but you know, a group of kids roaming the streets and getting themselves into trouble. Because they had, you know, they didn't really have supervision. It wasn't really a safe place for them to be outside roaming around. And that was a, that was tough. So as we are, as we're coming out of, coming out of all of this, we have, we've all been through our feels, our emotions over this past year. And ugh, I, I know I'm not looking forward to, to the way things are seem to be opening back up now. And um, it's going to be really awkward. It's already awkward when I'm interacting with people in person, like more awkward than I usually am. And I, I think it's going to be continue to be more awkward. And uh, it's one of those situations where we're going to really need to lay on the grace with each other. Mm -hmm. All right. We've, we've, wandered off the topic of, of fathers as caregivers, <laughs> but uh, it was a great conversation. Um, any last thoughts from either of you, Nikki and Sarah, about fathers as caregivers or the, you know, the, this, this staring down this change as we begin to um, shift back into doing more, you know, coming out of our homes after being isolated for so long? You know, I would say in terms of coming out of COVID is my prayer is everybody is going to give each other some grace. You know, we made a decision about masks for our family that we're gonna stick to. And we've been in a couple of situations where people have not made us feel good about that decision mm. or straight made fun of us, which was lovely. And it's just, <laughs> Just can we just be kind? And um, I was saying to Sarah last night, I thanked someone for something, one of the grocery store workers for something, and they just about lost their mind with gratitude that I was just nice. Mm. <laughs> like, guys, can we just, some people are still concerned and want to wear their mask. Just let them. Yeah. <laughs> and just, just leave them alone and let them and be nice. And accept that anxiety is a thing in the world and you can't control it. <laughs> yes. And accept that having anxiety does not make you weak. Yes. Mm -hmm. It actually takes a lot of strength to be anxious, to be honest. <laughs> How about you, Sarah? Last thoughts? My last thoughts are I am really looking forward to the awkwardness of seeing both of you in person in two mm -hmm. weeks. Yay. Our podcast listeners will not be privy to our girls overnight <laughs> trip, but I am super excited to be with yeah. both of you. And uh, uh, all awkwardness, all awkwardness, welcome. Yes. yes, there will be tears, maybe a little bit of squealing. <laughs> you guys. <laughs> and sorry, Sarah, you're friends with two non-huggers, so. 
I know, but I don't care. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I did get to see a friend for like the first time in a year. And I asked, are you fully vaccinated? And she's like, yes. And there we are on the sidewalk, just like hugging each other. We managed not to cry, but that was my first, my first post-COVID social interaction with someone I hadn't seen in over a year. Just like I had someone ask me, are you comfortable with hugging? And I said, do you mean COVID wise or like in my life? <laughs> because no to both. <laughs> <laughs> and I very much appreciated them asking. Yes. Always ask before you try to hug someone. It's, it's a good rule. And I, I tend to be a chameleon. I tend to be whatever they need from me. So I hug people mm -hmm. who I feel like need hugs and I don't hug people if I don't think they need hugs. Yeah, um, that's man, fair. Nikki, I don't know, Nikki. I you I read like me you pretty need, well. You might you need a hug, me. though. You read me pretty well when when you tend to recognize when one is actually needed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll keep my eyes open, but if I can't tell, I'll just ask you. <laughs> well, thank you both for your taking time out of your crazy day to uh, to sit and chat. And thank you to our audience for listening in. You're listening to Radical Traditional Feminist Podcast with Sam, Nikki, and Sarah. And we will see you. Uh, yeah, we'll see you next time and <laughs> have another great conversation. And perhaps we will share a story or two from getting to see each other in person <laughs> for the first time in over a year. <laughs> All right, folks. <laughs>